Hi, and welcome back to Mince's From the Edge, a podcast for startups and entrepreneurs. Mince is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at mincedge.com. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing my colleague, Jen Rubin. She's a member in our employment group, and we'll be talking about employment law matters for startups, particularly here in California. My name is Sebastian Lucier, and I'm a member in Mince's corporate group, where I work with startups and entrepreneurs to help them realize their vision, finance growth, and change the world. I'd like to introduce uh, Jen now. Uh, Jen, if you'd like to take a moment to introduce yourself and provide some background. Thanks, Sebastian. So uh, I am a bi-coastal employment lawyer. I was trained in New York, where I practiced for 25 years before I moved here to California five years ago. I uh, provide employment counseling and advice to executives um, all the way up to Fortune 50 companies. And I also, when things don't go right, I uh, represent those individuals and companies in court. So I like to think of myself as uh, providing practical solutions to employment problems that are really real world problems in the workplace. Perfect, thank you. So I know uh, employment matters vary a lot by jurisdiction. Um, and since we're here in California, and I know that California has some of the more unusual employment laws, um, I thought maybe it makes sense to kind of start off and, and have you tell us, you know, what are some of the, the biggest mistakes a company can make when hiring an employee in California? Yeah, I think that um, it's not so much unusual uh, from employment law perspective, but um, a highly regulated environment. Um, Sacramento uh, can't get enough of employment regulation, uh, rightly or wrongly, and this impacts uh, workplaces from uh, the very small startup workplace to um, even larger workplaces. So focusing on some mistakes that that might be made that are uh, kind of unique to California, I just want to back up, and this probably applies to any jurisdiction, but not focusing on the basics. So what does that mean? Well, when you bring an employee on, one of the very first things you need to make sure that you have is workers' compensation insurance. Um, In fact, failing to have that insurance could result in criminal penalties. So it's a very, very important point that sometimes gets overlooked especially in the kind of startup rush to, you know, being concerned about financing and and, uh, getting a product or service out to market and not focusing on the very basic things like insurance. And typically this is something that's sold together with a general liability policy, But, but that's a basic. Another basic is registration with California's Economic Development Department, otherwise known as EDD. Very important to make sure those registrations are in place so that the appropriate payroll tax withholdings can be made. And so the employer is duly registered, so to speak, um, with the state and in full compliance with any regulations that EDD might issue. Another basic that becomes very, very important in California is attending to payroll issues. Now, this is something that many employers might kind of uh, uh, outsource, which, by the way, is perfectly fine to do to a payroll vendor, but it's very, very important that that vendor be completely and fully familiar with California's extremely intricate regulations regarding what a paycheck looks like, what type of information has to be printed from, from things such as an employer's actual address to the employee's hours worked to rates of pay. Uh, very, very important not to make mistakes. And a, a very um, experienced vendor will certainly know, but always ask those questions. Another basic is uh, postings. What do you have in your workplace that is required by the uh, Department of Fair Employment and Housing, otherwise known as DFEH? If you go to their website, they have a very handy list 
that would apply. You can print them out and, and then post them. Terrific, thank you. And do these requirements all apply up and down um, the size of a company? Like if it's just a single founder by themselves, do these all apply? Or is it the first employee or is it the 10th employee? So a single founder um, is going to be basically exempt from a lot of these payroll uh, requirements. But as soon as you bring on an employee who is not a significant owner, you, you now have an individual who's subject to these regulations. Toward that end, one of the mistakes that I see made is treating that individual as, first of all, an independent contractor, and I know we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, no, if you call somebody an independent contractor, that does not make it so in the eyes of the state of California. But secondly, another mistake that I frequently see made by um, very uh, uh, young companies is to indicate or to provide that they're not going to make any type of payroll at all. They're going to defer it. Um, you can't do that. You have to pay certain minimums that are required by both state and federal law. Terrific. And those minimums in California are 2x minimum wage for uh, an exempt employee. Is that right? Yes. So um, in order to find somebody exempt, meaning they are exempt from overtime, which is very important because then you don't have to keep time records and you don't have to pay them overtime. And of course, exempt employees might might work 24-7, in fact. Uh, you don't want to have a situation where you have to start paying somebody overtime, which, by the way, in California, once somebody exceeds eight hours in a day and they're subject to the overtime requirements, are now um, obligated to, you have to pay them uh, time and a half. So um, maintaining the exemption, yes, two times the minimum wage calculated on the state level. But beware, everybody, localities have their own minimum wages that would apply to employees who are deemed to be hourly. And are there any kind of localities to be aware of? I would assume San Francisco. Is there anything like that? Yes, every single one. Every single one. (laughs) Um, L.A., Santa Monica, uh, San Diego, uh, Berkeley, Oakland. Um, These jurisdictions in particular are very active in uh, legislating not only as to the hourly rate of pay, but things like sick pay and sick leave. So it's very important when you set up your company that you not only look at federal law, which is always going to apply, state law, which typically will apply. And by the way, if you have five or more employees in California, to answer your prior question, you are now subject to a whole host of regulations. But the local regulations as well. So what municipality have you established your business in? Because that municipality's regulations are going to govern how your business operates. Perfect. I'm glad you mentioned that size of the company um, distinction. Uh, so there's a line at five, and can you give us a sense of, of kind of what comes into play at five, and is there any other line to be aware of where, where more comes into play? So the two significant lines really are the five employees. Um, and by the way, five employees who are, who are performing services for you as a California company, in fact, it may be that if they're performing services out of state, they might be counted. So beware, again, consult counsel if you have any questions about that. At five, you are now subject to the DFEH, or the Department of Fair Employment and Housing Regulations, which prohibit anti-discrimination, um, which uh, is a, a pretty extensive regulation in the state of California when it comes to uh, discrimination. And now, uh, or at least in 2020, starting 2020, you are now going to be obligated to provide training on uh, prohibiting sexual harassment at your workplace, uh, Jan 1, 2020, those uh, regulations go into effect. And then again, once you hit 50 employees, 
that's a new set of regulations. It's not just the Federal Family Medical Leave Act that would now apply, uh, but the rigorous training requirements for uh, supervisors, at least here in California, relating to not only uh, the prohibition of sexual harassment in your workplace, but the anti-bullying regulations, which also come into play once you hit uh, a threshold of 50. So um, in my view, 50, five and 50 are the two significant thresholds to me. Great. So let's, let's dig in a little bit on that independent contractor issue, because I know the law there has changed recently. I think that the kind of prior understanding was along the lines of independent contractors were kind of uh, characterized by a degree of, uh, of independent operation. And yes. so if they were supplying their own materials, if they weren't directly supervised, those yeah. were the criteria to say, yes, that person is an independent contractor. Yes. But the law has changed recently, right? Yeah. So, so back in May, the California Supreme Court decided what's called the Dynamex decision where they, uh, the California court tweaked the former kind of purely control uh, test to apply for what's known as the ABC test. Um, why is it called ABC? Because you have to satisfy now three requirements in order to properly classify an individual as an independent contractor. Those requirements are, uh, number one, the worker must be free from the employer's control in terms of uh, the method and manner and means of providing the services. And number two, the worker is performing work that is not in the usual course of the employer's business. And, and number three, the worker is customarily engaged in an independently established business. So what do these things mean? Let me, let me give an example because it's easier to make it concrete. Um, let's say a company is involved in uh, uh, the business of uh, painting houses and providing house painting services. If you hire a painter to work for you as a painter, that individual um, is definitely performing work that's in the usual course of your business. You are now knocked out because you're not going to be able to establish number item number two. Yes, perhaps they're working for other companies, uh, so you could establish item number three, but given the fact that they are performing painting services for a painting company pursuant to the Dynamex decision, they cannot be uh, classified as an independent contractor. If, however, that same painting company hires a website development company or person to develop a website for that painting company, arguably that that uh, person who's developing the, doing the web development services uh, could be characterized as an independent contractor because number one, arguably it's up to them to decide how they're gonna perform website development services, you know, the time, the manner, the method of performing those services. Uh, number two, uh, a web developer is not performing work in the usual uh, uh, course of a painting business, right? I think we can all agree on that. And number three, and, and this is where it becomes very important for companies to understand, um, if that web developer is holding themselves out generally as performing these web development services for many, many employers or businesses, um, how do you establish that? Well, do they have a website? Um, have they set up a sole proprietorship? You know, whether or not they're incorporated, are they holding themselves out to the, you know, to the world as generally being in business to perform services for anybody who wants to hire them? It's that latter piece that I find um, can lead to mix-ups with companies um, who decide that, oh, well, I'm gonna hire this web developer, oh, but by the way, they can only perform services for our company, and I'm gonna restrict them from performing services for others. That's a no-no under the Dynamex decision. I would you know, highly advise against doing that. 
Great. And, and what are the consequences for a company if they get this wrong? If they have an independent contractor and the how is the determination made? Like, what does that look like, that process? Well, um, generally speaking, uh, this frequently comes up when somebody files, for example, for unemployment with EDD. And of course, the employer, if they've characterized them as an independent contractor, has not been uh, making the proper employment withholding. Importantly, of course, um, unemployment premiums paid on that um, individual's behalf. This can frequently result in an audit by the state and by the way, the federal government as well. They could come in and impose um, pretty onerous penalties on, bu on businesses. Uh, so that's one way it can come up. The individual could also uh, sue the employer and make claims to benefits. Uh, they could make claims that their paycheck that I talked about at the beginning that has to be so precise obviously wasn't so because they're submitting invoices and they're getting paid kind of gross amounts on the invoices. So it could it typically could come up in either of those two ways. And is there any kind of punitive element that the company could experience for kind of a failure to properly classify? Oh, absolutely, because the state can impose penalties that can be pretty severe. Okay, so in addition to the recovery of the employee, there could be additional state penalties tacked on that, top. That's exactly right. Okay, that's great. So um, one thing that comes up a lot of times when I'm working with startups is they often uh, come to me and ask about employment agreements. And my general reaction, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, is you, you really don't want an employment agreement if you are the employer. Mm -hmm. That employment agreements are largely for the benefit of employees. So I wanted to kind of ask you, what should they be doing? Should they do an employment agreement? Or if not, what's the alternative? Well, an employment agreement, that term to me as an employment lawyer, indicates that there's limitations on the employer's ability to discharge uh, the employee. And if the employees discharge, uh, whether or not there's uh, compensation or other benefits due and owing. So um, certainly, as a uh, management side employment lawyer, um, I, I like to counsel my clients against providing those incentives and benefits because then you you may have a, a dispute upon the employee's termination that could cost you money. So you know, my preference is not to have those types of terms. Um, with that said, you know, the term employment agreement is actually pretty much of a, a generic term that could apply to even an, an offer letter that you provide to an employee that I hope um, all employers are using that outlines the terms and conditions of the individual's employment, the rate of pay, which you want to set forth, things like vacation, other benefits, and of course that uh, all-important at-will provision that you want to include that makes it clear that you as the employer have the right to uh, discharge uh, with or without cause and with or without notice. So an employment contract or employment agreement that limits your ability to discharge or sets forth a sp specific period of time or term of employment, I think are things that really should be reserved for the, the highest levels of employees or, or those who are very, very difficult to recruit. Terrific. That's great. I uh, really appreciate your thoughts. Any uh, parting thoughts or advice on employment matters in California or anything we, we haven't covered that you think we should highlight? Yeah, just, just a couple of things. Um, as indicated at the beginning, this is a very, this is a highly regulatory environment. So uh, just a couple of kind of new things. Um, California passed uh, a law, a Labor Code 925, that went into effect on January 1, 2017, that prohibits choice of law provisions in employment agreements, except in very limited circumstances, so that a California employer, in, in an attempt, for example, to avoid, many people are aware that we have restrictions against non-competes, for example, um, to uh, having an employer say to uh, kind of a rank and file employee, 
oh, by the way, we're a Delaware corporation, so we're just going to use Delaware to apply to your uh, terms and conditions of employment. That is now illegal in California, so employers should beware. Again, there's some exceptions um, relating to that, but generally speaking, uh, a very bad idea. And sorry, when you say illegal, do you mean simply unenforceable, or there's, again, actually like a penalty or consequence well, to putting that in there? Yeah, it's not a criminal uh, mm -hmm. provision, but um, yes, there are penalties in that you can be forced to First of all, it's not um, enforceable, so you're not going to be able to enforce it against the employee. And worse, you may have to pay the employee's legal fees. So who mm. wants to do that? So um, those are the uh, provisions in the statute. Um, the other, uh, there are qu quite a few others. We don't have enough time to go over them. <laughs> um, arbitration. Um, if you are planning to use an arbitration agreement in California, consult your um, favorite employment lawyer for the terms and conditions because California is quite persnickety about uh, those provisions and, and how they're enforced. Um, you have to have some uh, uh, you, special language in your uh, arbitration agreements, um, at least as of this point in time. Again, these are kind of ever-changing ever um, uh, landscape of uh, uh, legalities. Non-competes, I mentioned them very briefly. Everybody's familiar, I think, with California's uh, uh, law that prohibits non-compete agreements except in connection with the sale of a business, um, which of course uh, you're permitted to have them. People really do erroneously include those provisions uh, frequently in even offer letters or uh, proprietary rights agreements. People may not realize that if you go ahead and, and include those provisions, that's actually a separate violation of California law. So you can't even ask somebody to agree to it. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, and again, another reason to consult your uh, favorite California employment lawyer before you go down that road. Terrific. Yeah, and I understand too that having that non-compete in there is poisonous not just to enforcement of that particular provision, but you could have the entire agreement struck, right? A absolutely. And then you could end up uh, uh, facing a separate cause of action in court uh, for even including it in the agreement in the first place. Right. And who wants to do that? So there we go. Avoid non-competes <laughs> except, you know, in context of an M&A transaction. Yes. Uh, I think is the bottom line here. Yes. Well, terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jen. Really appreciate having you here. And thank you, Sebastian. All right. Well, this has been uh, Mince from the Edge. Thank you.